Welcome to another episode of The Roundtable. I'm Max Taylor, Assistant Intelligence Manager at Intelligence Fusion. I'm Peter Wood, Regional Analyst. I'm Matt Pratton, Senior Regional Analyst for Europe. And in this episode, we're discussing Iranian foreign policy. And more specifically, we're going to be discussing how successful has Iranian foreign policy been in the previous couple of years. So for the purpose of this podcast, I've tried to understand exactly what it is for foreign policy to be successful. And I appreciate this is quite a subjective question, but I've essentially brought this down into four categories. And these are alliances. Has Iran forged strong alliances that are beneficial to their strategy? Does Iran have secure borders? How has Iran's power projection been? Are they winning in the theatres in which they're competing in? How are they doing in these areas such as Yemen, Yemen and Iraq? And the final one is... Does their foreign policy support their domestic policy? And this is a bit more complicated and it's something I'd like to touch on at some point. But I think uh, to get us started, I thought may as well start with alliances. And this is a good place to talk about what's going on right now as we speak. And that's with the Iranian influence in the Ukraine conflict in the form of selling drones to the Russians and potentially ballistic missiles. So, Matt, could you tell us a little bit about what's going on in Ukraine in regards to Iran, uh, Iran's influence and also how effective has this been in developing a relationship between Iran and Russia? Well, uh, as far as the relationship goes, there's always been sort of a relationship between the between two states as they're sort of both seen as, pari- as pariahs to the wider international community. But the, in terms of Iran's uh, involvement in Ukraine, it's actually been quite recent. Well, it's been only recently confirmed where... On the 6th of October, uh, had reports indicating that uh, both Iran and Russia had, agree, had, had come to an agreement where Iran would uh, assist Russia with supplying munitions for their, for, for their uh, war in Ukraine. For, uh, and the specific types that they're, they're supplying, first of all, is the uh, Shahed-136 uh, suicide drone or, or, or UAV. They've been deployed on a number of they, – they're now deployed on a regular basis – uh, th- uh, throughout Ukraine, but there's also two other weapons that they that they've uh, reportedly going to supply, which is which are ballistic missiles, specifically the Fata one one zero, as well as the Zolfaga uh, ballistic missile. Now, when it comes to these particular two, uh, they're they're classed as tactical or short range ballistic missiles. Now, the the, the t- that sort of title can be a bit deceptive because a quick rundown of those two missiles. Is with the Fata one one zero, it's quite. It is actually quite accurate. It's a conventional missile, and in terms of range, here's where the short range part becomes a little bit deceptive. The range can go from two hundred fifty to five hundred kilometers, and uh, with that kind of distance, that sort of missile can be launched at a target in Ukraine from uh, from easily from Crimea uh, across the uh, across the Black Sea, uh, from within Russian uh, from easily from within Russian territory or from within Belarus. And those three locations have been areas where Russia has launched ballistic missiles at, uh, in the past, uh, specifically targeting uh, Kiev, as uh, as well as you know, other areas around around the country. And as for the Zolfaga. Now that one, uh, the range on that can go up to about seven hundred kilometres. And in terms of payload, uh, what I've been able to find out is that it has a five hundred kilo uh, high explosive payload uh, in in, the, in its in its warhead. So those particular two missiles are quite concerning. They're, even at a short range, the, that in terms of ballistic missiles, that still covers quite a quite a considerable so distance. They're quite substantial weapons, then. So what? Has Iran got in return then from Russia as part of this in the context of, you know, have, has this developed an alliance, more of an alliance between Russia and 
Russia and Iran. Yeah, that's been a difficult part so far. I haven't really seen what the, I suppose you would call the quid pro quo is. Uh, I've been having a look to see if there would be any kind of uh, discounted energy deals uh, for, for Iran in the term, in, in, in form of natural gas uh, natural gas and oil. Um, but I haven't seen that yet. It's, mm. there's, there's bound to be details on it out there, but it just hasn't come to, come to light yet. I should probably add it before we carry on here about alliances. I know that there's no alliance between Russia and Iran right now. I'm just using it in a broad diplomatic sense of the term as like a relationship. But what you were saying about um, what Iran is getting out of it, I think possibly Iran, I know Iran is looking to modernise their air force at the moment. That in some, I believe they still use quite antiquated uh, Tomcats, F-14 Tomcats now. So I wouldn't be surprised if they're expecting to get some more modern aircraft from Russia. But then at the same time, can Russia afford to be selling off its own aircraft at a time when it really needs them? Uh, yeah, well, with its with its current stocks, it wouldn't really be able to uh, provide uh, what it currently has. However, where there would be an opportunity in that regard is with uh, Russia's development of its fifth generation fighter. Now, uh, if you know, we've, I believe we've all seen the film Top Gun. The the <laughs> Russia, the, the well, it, it's called the enemy aircraft, and that, but it's a, it's a Russian Su fifty seven. It's their latest and greatest uh, uh, fifth generation fighter. It's the I believe it's the Su fifty seven. Uh, felon but there's an export version which uh is has only really been i think there's only been a display version of it shown at the mm. at, a, at the moscow at a uh, international air show that occurred in last international air show that occurred in moscow the export version is the su-75 checkmate now supposedly that hasn't even come into uh, come into production yet but with iran supplying uh, iran supplying missiles and uh su- and well quite ineffective suicide drones uh, to Russia for their war on Ukraine, there could be an opportunity for Russia to actually find a way to start exporting some of its latest weaponry uh, in order to keep its defence industry going. And a, a good opportunity for that, I suppose, would be a deal that would include Russia making and uh, making and selling uh, Su-75s. But that's that's a that's an assessment. Now, I haven't seen anything that would confirm that or even indicate that at the moment. So that kind of brings me on to the second part of it. Earlier, obviously, I labelled the four sort of pillars of foreign policy, I guess you call them, and that's power projection as well. So talking about Iran improving its military. And also this, there's a lot of crossover between these two categories, between the alliances category and the power projection one, because Iran's not only partnered with Russia, for example, state actors such as Russia and China. They've also, as everyone knows, got very complicated relationships with groups from across the Middle East. So... To name just a few, you've got the Hezbollah militia in Iraq, as, as well as Lebanon, the Houthi militia in uh, in Yemen, as well as extens- ex- extensive connections with the Syrian government across parts of Syria, albeit with um, some rivalry there with Russia. But generally speaking, they do work together and coordinate. So, Peter, can you tell us a bit about what Iran has been doing in Iraq and how successful Iran has been in fostering links in Iraqi politics? Yeah, um, so first of all, I'll give you a quick... Uh, breakdown of yeah, sort yeah. of Iraqi politics in general yeah, for the yeah. past Sounds good, year, yeah. let's say, because you're a brave man. It's quite a com- <laughs> yeah, yeah. complicated. A theme, very, yeah. a very <laughs> simplified version. Uh, very simplified version. So uh, last October, oh, sorry, last year in October uh, 2021, Iraq had elections, early elections caused by uh, mass protests in the country. Uh, Tishreen movement is the name of the protests, and they were generally uh, anti-corruption anti-foreign influence, notably Iranian influence. Um, lots of protesters actually died during the, these protests and often pro-Iran militias were blamed. 
Um, so October 21, um, new elections come in and uh, cleric Muqtada al-Sadr is the winner. His party is by far the largest party. Um, but with the nature of uh, Iraqi politics, he can't govern, can't elect a prime minister. All this sort of things happen. So he resigns or his party resigns en masse. Um, you have this sort of political deadlock for a while. And then a couple of months ago, we had Green Zone being stormed by his militias. Um, and as a result of that, the second largest sort of block has taken over his seats. And the second largest block in Iraqi politics are the pro-Iran coordination framework. And they're led by former Prime Minister Nouri al-Maliki. So at the moment in Iraqi politics, the pro-Iran Shia parties are now the largest group. So for Iran at the moment, currently, they've got what they regard as a pretty friendly government in Iraq. So <laughs> that's where we are at the moment. Yeah. 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 No, it's good. It's, better, it's a better summary than I could have done. So uh, <laughs> now we're done. Yeah. So this is probably in terms of Iran's opportunities in Iraq, they're quite similar to previous years. Like I say, the uh, Nouri al-Maliki's party, he was former prime minister. He was very close. He is very close to Iran. Um, so you're going to, I think we'll see a, probably a repeat of Iranian policy in Iraq from when he was prime minister before. Um, I think the main thing for Iran uh, in Iraq is sort of strengthening the sort of Shia crescent they have, you know, going from Lebanon, Syria, you mentioned before, being an ally with them into Iraq and then obviously themselves in Iran. Um, I think that's, in terms of regional power, that's really what they want, this sort of Shia crescent that can touch and hit Israel. It can also threaten Saudi Arabia. It's also up against Turkey as well. You've got lots of ways that they can threaten or influence these sort of hostile regional powers, certainly for them. Um, just for two of them as well, it's a good way for them to pressure uh, the US as well. There's still lots of US bases in Iraq, Syria. They can use, they don't have to do it themselves, but they can use these pro-Iran militias uh, inside Iraq, you know, to potentially threaten them. Uh, Turkish bases too, obviously, as well. Um, I think as well with Iraq, this is maybe an example of signs to come. Uh, last week, we saw, I think it was last week, we saw the killing of this um, American aid worker. And it was reported that he was killed in the process of a kidnap. And it sort of appears that pro-Iran militia was responsible. So I think maybe you might see activities like that, kidnapping of Westerners, maybe as a way to influence US policy, maybe to try and extract concessions with regards to the nuclear deal, things like this, maybe try and use hostages as pawns for this sort of deal. Um, and also as well, I think obviously Syria is, uh, like you said before, like a, a key ally for Iran. I think they'll probably try and 
maybe look for other opportunities into Syria. Um, at the moment, uh, Sinjar in northern Iraq is kind of your gateway into northern Syria. Um, in the past, Turkey's tried to sort of get in there, but there was a sort of deal where they had had to sort of keep their hands off. So it's a bit of a no man's land there. So maybe I think you might possibly see Iranian militias or pro-Iran militias maybe clash with some some Kurdish forces there or even Turkish forces there. Yeah, the uh, relationship between the Iranian militias, particularly in Syria, actually on the other side of the border, is is actually quite interesting because the Iranian militias are very dominant in the Der- in Syria's Deir ez province yeah. and close to where you were just talking about as well. And you have militias such as um, uh, the Fetamayoun militia, which is recruited from Afghan, mostly Afghan refugees staying in, in Iran. And they've been very active in the anti-Islamic state operations in the Syrian desert. And as a result, they've gained a lot of influence in Deir ez-Zor and places such as Abu Kamal. So yeah, it's... Um, on the other side of the river, you've got the US-backed uh, SD- Syrian Democratic forces who are mostly Kurdish. Yeah. So yes, whilst Deir ez-Zor is actually fairly stable in terms of clashes between government and opposition forces because the SDF and the government now have a loose agreement, there is, as you said, still the potential for some form of clashes, whether these start in Iraq or they start in Deir ez-Zor province. There's always tensions. As long as the SDF are backed by the US, they are ultimately going to be opposing each other. Yeah, exactly. I think... Um that's probably more likely that's got a lot of confluence there. Like mm. you're saying, you've got Kurds, you've got Turkish forces. Mm. Now you'll probably have pro-Iran forces. Who knows what the sort of central Iraqi government will do. So I think coming up, that will probably, the north of Iraq mm. probably will be where more of the clashes happen. In terms of the south, um, Iran actually has a large investment there. They're planning to build uh, a railway line. And it's going to go from, you know, the coast Iran, Basra, through Syria, and finally end up in Latakia. Mm. Give them a nice little railway line to the Mediterranean. And as well, I think maybe along that route, because obviously that's a more Shia region of Iraq, Iran's always been stronger there. I think they'll probably might see a lot more examples of, you know, oil smuggling, try and get around some sanctions Mm. there and take it to the Mediterranean, because obviously there's pretty rife smuggling coming from Syria. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting you bring that up with regards to with regards to smuggling. Uh, the the Iranians definitely have a pen, uh, a pension for it. Um, I mean, just uh, just remind like when you mentioned that that part is that uh, with regards to the you know what attract in uh, what have been tracking in Ukraine recently, an interesting detail came up, came up about the Shahed one three six drone is uh, supposed according to reports that I've come across is the Ukrainians have been able to capture some of those those drones or the ones they've shot down, which is. Uh, you know, from what we've seen so far, those Shahed 136s are they're just about useless. Uh, they're, they're loud, they're slow, and they're easy to spot and shoot down. Uh, I mean, you know, aside from uh, aside from a recent misfire that went into Poland, um, Ukraine's air defence has actually been getting quite a, a lot better lately. So the Shaheds just don't stand a chance. But the components that they come across, there's been... Uh, yeah, circuits and chips that they found inside these Shahed 136s where they've come from uh, supposedly US suppliers. There's no markings on them, but they've been able to match them up with, you know, with, 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 uh, with other data. So it goes to show just how, uh, you know, how effective the Iranians have been in terms of, you know, even though they're, being, they've, they're heavily sanctioned just like Russia, they're still able to find ways to get their hands on equipment which can give them you know, sort of drone capabilities. So uh, some like, uh, like oil smuggling, uh, should they be 
able to get to the you know, get to places like Basra a lot easier with that rail line. Uh, a lot of fuel smuggling is going to become a lot easier. I mean, if they can get to, if they can do it with chips, mm. I mean, you know, something like, something like oil would be almost uh, they could almost do it blindfolded. Exactly. Yeah. So back to power projection. So we've spoken about a bit about Ukraine. We've spoken about Iraq, Syria. Obviously, there's a very well known connection between Iran and the Houthis in Yemen. There's other areas as well that um, we haven't really had a chance. We, we probably won't be able to speak too much about it in too much detail in the interest of time. But places such as Lebanon, very traditional Iranian influence amongst the Hezbollah group there. But also one that perhaps we haven't heard so much about is in Tajikistan, and this is somewhere I'm finding quite interesting. And I, I should add before I go on, it is very limited influence, and I use inverted commas for influence here as well. So Iran, much like with Ukraine, has been selling drones to this region, and then Iran's been selling drones to the Tajiks. And these drones are generally meant to supplement the Tajik arsenal in the in the context of increased clashes between Tajikistan and Kyrgyzstan. The Tajik government has gone and bought some drones from Tajikistan. And this could easily just be just a weapons deal with no added influence on top of it. But what it does also represent is the Iranians extending their influence, albeit via weapons sales, into the Central Asia region. Not necessarily at the expense of the Russians, but in light of Russian influence potentially receding in the Central Asia region as a result of the war in Ukraine. So again, this isn't just a couple of countries. We're seeing the Iranian mostly uh, influence mostly through the form of arms sales. We are seeing it increase into other parts of the world, like Ukraine and like Tajikistan, as well as their more traditional links with uh, militant groups and non-state groups in the Middle East, like Iraq. Um, one thing I find really interesting, actually, going back to Iraq, we mentioned earlier, you said uh, Ir- Iranian influence in southern Iraq has always been quite strong, with this being a majority Shia area. And interestingly, Matt, you were deployed there in your own time as well. But one thing, maybe you'll be able to add to this in a second, but one thing I've noticed is in recent years, the, move- the sh- largely Shia protest movements that we've seen in um, southern Iraq have generally taken a more nationalist stance and they've started to turn their back on Iran somewhat. And it doesn't mean they're moving towards USA because they are also commenting that they just dislike foreign interference in general. But in this part of Iraq, the majority of the influence is coming from the Iranians rather than the Americans. And it's been really interesting watching this slight shift away from the Iranians now in the Sajirith bloc, for example, Muqtada al-Assad are moving away from the Iranians and becoming more of a nationalist figure rather than this uh, seen as like an Iranian proxy of sorts. Yeah, if I can just jump in there. Yeah, yeah, sure. I mean, obviously, yeah, you just mentioned them, Muqtada al-Assad, probably... The one individual who will cause the Iranians the biggest headache yeah. in Iraq, like you said before, like I mean, he was the leader of the Mahdi army, was allied to Iran during the American occupation, but what else we've seen in the Green Zone storming recently, he's not pro Iran, he's pro Muqtada al Sadr, mm. um, he's a he's a <laughs> Shia cleric, yeah, um, but he's an Iraqi nationalist, like yeah. you said, he's fought the other Iranian militias. Um, I suspect he'll be a massive headache mm-hmm. uh, for them going forward. Still, you know, last year his political party was the biggest political party in Iraq uh, and actually managed to form some pretty good alliances with Kurds, with Sunnis. Um, at the moment, the current government has an uh, alliance with Sunni parties and Kurdish parties, but there's no formal agreement. Still pretty shaky. Wouldn't surprise me if that breaks down uh, in the future as well. And also that like you're saying the, the, you know, the Tishreen protest movement. Yes, anti-foreign influence, and it doesn't matter whether that's mm. American or Iranian. Um, and in fact, yeah, it's not really a... It's also slightly anti-clerical too. Mm. Um, there was protests in... Like the Iranian consulates were were um, burned in Najaf and Karbala. Mm. And these are very pro 
Shia and sort of religious, yeah, religiously yeah. Shia areas too. So there's no real, yeah, there's not the affinity that maybe there once was um, for for Iran there. And um, yeah, and also actually just speaking about the sort of Shia influence and going back to Najaf as well, there's been actually some videos of sort of similarities to um, or it's sort of anti-clerical sentiment that's been passing through Iran, mm. also in Iraq now, um, like in Najaf, which again is a very religious sort of city. Lots of videos of protesters knocking turbans mm. off of Shia clerics that have been so prominent in Iran too. So I think if protests spread in Iran, they might also potentially have the... Yeah, they might also potentially spread to Iraq too. Mm. Uh, given another headache for the yeah for sure yeah clerical leadership yeah. yeah yeah and I mean from what I from what I noticed I mean it's well over a decade over a decade ago now yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I was I was in I was in southern Iraq uh, Dikar province and did come across one occasion where there was sort of an indication of sort of the popularity of of Mokhtar uh, al-Assad was very very. Uh, it's you know it was a, it was an indication not nothing nothing really uh, uh, totally set in stone and I suppose you know sorry to kind of kind of uh, uh, you know uh, spoil things on this one is that when I was when I was in Dikar province I was uh, walking across a lot of uh, flat open terrain <laughs> did come across did come across the odd uh, the, the the odd the odd village on a on a on a task but a lot of the time it was you know out in the middle of the out in the middle of the desert, <laughs> so I can tell you one. I didn't see much influence out there of Montana or so. At least you're honest. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, it brings us on to our next sections then. And then once we've finished all, going through all four, we'll start looking at actually how successful have they been in this as well. So the next one, I think this, I think this is quite interesting. And I've, I know I said that secure, securing their own borders and domestic uh, stability as two separate categories, but I do think they're quite linked. But I'm going to start with securing their borders. And we've spoken about Iranian influence in Iraq, obviously borders Iran. I think this is quite an interesting issue because Iran actually has quite insecure border regions, both politically and also just from a pure uh, on-the-ground security perspective. So, for example, with Iraq, we've just seen, we've just mentioned that the influence of Iran in major militia groups such as the Sadrus movement starting to reduce and we're seeing Sadrus militias clashing with PMF militias more and more, creating quite a lot of insecurity, especially in times of protests in southern Iraq. On the other side of Iran in the east is Afghanistan and typically during the war uh, or during the NATO operations in Afghanistan, Iran was Iran had quite strong links with certain aspects of the Taliban. I'm very reluctant to say with the Taliban because it was only with parts of the Taliban. They had some strong links and they used these links not necessarily to extend their influence per se, more just to en- ensure that it's insecurity doesn't spill over into Iran. And they did this fairly well for the 20 years. However, now that the common enemy is gone in the form of the USA and the NATO allies, the situation has changed quite a lot. There's not been you know massive border incursions from the Taliban into Iran or vice versa. However, there has been several incidents now of um, Iranian clashes between Iranian border guards and Taliban fighters. And one thing I found quite interesting is both the Taliban and the Iranians have been quite quick to try and de-escalate the situation. Just the language they've been using has often sort of pointed towards these being, you know, isolated incidents. They try and avoid the uh, any negative discourse. However, followers on both sides have generally seen seen this for what it is, and it's it's taking a strong nationalist stance. And there's been also been instances of Afghan refugees being treated very poorly by Iranian border guards, and in some cases killed. 
So the discourse you see online and in general media has been quite uh, incendiary, I'd say, between some Afghan out, uh, news outlets, for example, and, and the Iranian government. And it's been quite interesting. So this border, whilst at the moment isn't, I wouldn't say is a hostile border, it definitely has the potential to be, to spiral spiral into a much worse situation for Iran. So on their on Iran's west, you have Iraq, which is where they're losing influence. On their east, you have uh, Afghanistan, where again, the situation is unpredictable, I would say is a the loosest way to put it. And interestingly, to the north of the Caucasus region, again, I wouldn't say it's an insecure border, but we've seen recently tensions really been building up between the Azerbaijanis and Iran. And as everyone knows, Azerbaijan uh, secures military support from Israel as well as other countries as well. And in the recent clashes of uh, fighting with Armenia, Azerbaijan has gained a, a substantial amount of influence in the Caucasus region and, has re and we've really seen Armenia begin to... Uh, almost second-guess itself. Armenia seems to be really uh, struggling to find itself in within that region at the moment with a very powerful Turkey on one side and um, Azerbaijan, which was recently so successful in fighting on the other. And as part of this, we've seen the relationship between Iran and Azerbaijan really deteriorate with Iran actually holding military drills on the border. And again, I'm not saying that one of them is going to invade the other. I'm not sat here saying that war is coming. However, it's, but what I am saying is it's another border region which I would not describe as secure. It's unpredictable right now and... But this is from a political perspective rather than on-the-ground security. But nevertheless, this is an issue that the Iranians really can't afford, especially with uh, uh, ethnic Azeris in northern Iran, uh, north uh, northwestern Iran as well, sharing this border with Azerbaijan. There's always a lot of finger-pointing from Iran, claiming that the Azerbaijani government is uh, trying to influence ongoing separatist movements in, um, in Azeri parts of Iran. So I don't know what you guys think. With that in mind, obviously, I've just gone on a bit of a monologue there with my own opinion. But in my opinion, I don't think Iran has done... I don't think Iranian foreign policy has done much to secure their borders. If anything, I think this quite uh, aggressive at times foreign policy has actually unnerved certain neighbours and has also not guaranteed them long-term security or influence within these non-state groups, such as the Taliban, PMF, the Sadrist movement. They haven't got this guaranteed influence within these groups. It seems to be very much based on relationships of convenience i don't know if you guys would agree with that or not but uh, just going back to what you were saying about their relationship with you know the ethnic Azeris in their own mm. uh in iran and in azerbaijan is very similar sort of uh situation to actually the kurds mm. in iraq you've seen actually iran attack kurds in iraq um because they are accusing them of separatism of fanning the flames of the protests in Iran. But just from monitoring Iran, it does seem that a lot of the more violent aspects of the protests are kind of centred on the ethnic minority mm. areas, whether that's Azeri or Kurdish or in Balochistan or whatever. You do get a lot of the violence against state authorities there. Um, so I suppose maybe if they... Iranian protests took an even more, I mean, they're pretty violent now, but even more violent turn. You might see, yeah, spillover into sort of more ethnic lines. Mm. I mean, obviously, you still have violence against, you know, ethnically Persian protesters. Yeah, yeah. But it does seem that a, a lot of the violence against the Iranian state is in the ethnic minority areas. So, yeah, yeah. it's a yeah, big possibility you could see, yeah, ethnic violence in the sort of borderlands yes yeah, spill over into the other countries whether that's azerbaijan or mm. iraq or and this is why i think the secure borders is so linked that it has their foreign policy influence their domestic policy yeah. this is exactly what you were saying as you said obviously the iran protests are a complicated issue and there's a lot of dynamics to it but one that's been very noticeable right from the start has been 
these did originally start, I believe, in the Kurdish areas of Iran. Yeah, uh, the young girl who was killed, mm. um, of, of the press has been calling her uh, Masa Amini, yeah. but her family called her Jina mm. Amini because she's Kurdish. Mm. Jina was her Kurdish name. Okay. And it was a, a trip to uh, Tehran, actually, and she was killed there. She wasn't actually killed in Kurdistan, but obviously the protest began there. And there has, it's one of these, I mean, obviously most reporting has just been gen, the general protest, but there has been a sort of ethnic dimension to it. Mm. And there has been a lot of discrimination, particularly against Kurdish groups mm. in Iran. Um, if you look at, you know, the people executed by the regime, the vast majority of them are actually Kurdish as mm. well. So, yeah, it is something that's kind of underreported and probably something quite worrying to yeah, the regime in general. Yeah, I, I would imagine. Yeah. So, from supporting domestic stability perspective, then, so obviously with that in mind, one thing I found really interesting about Iranian foreign policy, and I was asking myself this before we started today. You know, I was just writing down some notes, and I thought to myself, do the Iranian government think their policy is successful? Obviously, I can't speak on their behalf, but I'm inclined to think that perhaps they are because. Their foreign policy has very much seen them moving away from this neither west nor east towards a very uh, strong pivot to the east, towards China and Russia in particular. And we've seen Iran become very close with both states, becoming increasingly more reliant as Western sanctions further alienate Iran from the west. Seen this become more reliant on these very authoritarian governments. And one thing I found really interesting is, and I saw I read a, a few good articles about this too, was perhaps this is a deliberate thing. The Iranian government itself is very conservative, it's very authoritarian. As the as a as the protests show, and by allying allying themselves with uh, or creating these relationships with states such as Russia and China, which also have very authoritarian conservative governments, Iran is essentially making a block of like-minded governments to some degree. And I, I assume that the Iranian government is aware that things such as deals with the EU, which would then lead to perhaps political reform, can only go one way for their very authoritarian, somewhat well, quite unpopular conservative government and i think they'll be very aware that deals of the west will probably mean are probably quite self-destructive to their regime however and i find this really interesting so as a result the more conservative uh, politicians within the iranian government probably don't see this shift towards the east as a negative thing obviously you know everyone's got their own opinion but at first glance it looks like they're they're betting on a losing horse so for example getting involved in ukraine with the russians losing but not lost i'm mean, careful to use that term just because they're doing badly now doesn't mean the war can change you know it's we've seen multiple times in history that you know wars are different but right now iran seems to really put their eggs in the basket with russia as one would expect and at first i thought this just seems like a terrible foreign policy choice but then at, if you look at the internal dynamics with iran it makes sense they're trying to have these relationships with other governments much like them who aren't going to pressure the iranian government to reform and will very likely support them in suppressing these protests. Because as we've seen with Russia, for example, in the Kazakh protests earlier this year, Russia is more interested in internal stability in their neighbours than they are in uh, more ideological goals of these governments. So Russia will probably have no issue in supporting Iran and crushing these protests, neither would China. And that's what I think is motivating their policy at the moment. Whether or not that's been successful for them is, I think, debatable, as you said. Internal divisions amongst uh, ethnic groups and the ongoing... Uh, protest movement across Iran suggests that they have very deeply ingrained substantial social issues and the foreign policy has come up multiple times in this we've seen these protesters often talking about things such as well you spend all this money on the Houthi rebels sending ballistic missiles why can't we have running water why why are, why, are, why is our irrigation channels 
why are our irrigation channels so poorly maintained? You know, uh, things like this often come up in these protests taking place in Iran now. So I think, yes, there is a strong relationship between the foreign policy and the domestic policy. And I think for the Iranian government, it's been, they, their foreign policy has not complemented their internal stability. Yeah, doesn't really no, leave anything for you guys to say. No, <laughs> well, no, I mean, I've just been thinking about that with that regard. I mean, with regards with uh, with Iran, I mean, you've got the you know, in terms of who actually runs Iran. Just correct, correct me if I'm wrong on this one. My, my knowledge is still a bit bro- is still broad at best on the internal workings. But I mean, you've got the you've got the, you've got the clerics who who you know are the officially in charge. But the IRGC are the one are the enforcers. They're the ones that make that make everything that make everything happen. And in terms of what's been happening re- recently, I mean, just looking at the, you know, bring up Ukraine again, with regards to this move with, you know, supplying, supplying munitions to, uh, to to Russia, well, I think by, I think spring next year we'll see how things really go because I think that's when we're going to see those two missiles I was talking about uh, actually, be, actually be fired. The drones have proven to be pretty much useless, uh, in fact, and there's, there's not been much, you know, done in the way of t- training the Russians on how, on how to use them. Has me thinking that, that uh, with sort of you know the, the seemingly you know lackluster performance of Iranian foreign policy, is that down to just the quality of, the quality of leadership in the I, in, in the IRGC as they pretty much you know run things in, both inside Iran and they they all they are also the ones who project uh, Iran's uh, Iran's interests overseas. I mean Hez, uh, Hezbollah, for example, would you know would not be anywhere half as half as good as it would be if it weren't for the if it weren't for the IRGC. The uh, Iran-backed militias in uh, in Iraq wouldn't be anything as capable without the help of the IRGC. In fact, um, I didn't bring it up before, but when I was deployed to Iraq, it was a you know a problem nationwide. It hit the American soldiers really hard. Was the influence of the explosive form projectile, which mm. was being supplied by Iran to uh, to the insurgents, courtesy of the IRGC. And at the time, um, I've brought this guy's name up when we we're doing our research for this. That was down, a lot of that was down to uh, you know was being overseen by one man who was you know killed in January 2020 and that is General Qasem Soleimani. So with regards to what we're sort of seeing in terms of you know what appears to be lackluster performance both inside and outside Iran, could that possibly be down to I suppose an ongoing effect of uh, Qasem Soleimani's assassination in January 2020? And I believe he, they the, the Americans also took out a few of his. Uh, Few of his uh, next, in, uh, well, at least one, uh, a second in command, and, uh, and a few potential mm. future commanders. Yeah, from what I've read, Soleimani was like an organizational genius and kept all the sort of affiliates on a pretty tight leash. Um, so yeah, I, I do think that probably since his assassination, the, uh, yeah, uh, Iranian the IRGCs probably suffered a great deal. I mean, even just looking at. The, if we go talking about Hezbollah there, the deal they made, uh, Lebanon made with uh, Israel, uh, and apparently Hezbollah agreed to that. Mm. So I don't see that happening in the mm. past. Yeah, you okay. know, su- such a significant thing like that. That's a good point. Yeah. Um, same with, I mean, in the Green Zone protests, it sort of seemed that the Sadrist forces had the upper hand. Were kind of knocking seven bells out of the pro-Iranian militias and maybe with Soleimani's influence, guidance, help, maybe that wouldn't have happened either. So, yeah, I do probably think that that killing had a big knock-on effect. Um, Carrying on with that as well, I've heard 
in the Iranian government, again, I don't claim to be an expert, so this is just anecdotal, but apparently interdepartmental uh, competition as well as just inter-individual co- competition mm-hmm. is, is huge and it's very, very prolific. And you can imagine that just doesn't make for good decision-making process, mm-hmm. but also following the removal of Qasem Soleimani, you can't help but wonder, is this, inter- is this competition just completely... Uh, almost hamstringing any ability to make these decisive decisions needed. Yeah, maybe the power play internally yeah. is, is sort of... For yeah, sure, yeah. Fra- yeah. Stratifying it, fracturing yeah. it more, yeah. 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 Okay, so going back through these four categories, then I'm just going to go around all four. I'm just going to discuss, do we think they've... With all this information in mind, do we think they've been successful in this area? So the first one we mentioned was uh, their relationships, or I use the term alliances, but I know it's not strictly speaking, that's not accurate. Has Iran made good relationships with uh, with other states and has this been successful for their foreign policy? And obviously, we started off by speaking about Ukraine there. And uh, Matt, I'll let you talk about this one, but with you were talking earlier about the concept of perhaps inadvertently sucking Ukraine into this, uh, Israel into this Ukraine conflict by getting involved themselves. Yeah. So... I suppose in the short term, uh, you know, what, what appears to be happening with it, with, uh, it doesn't appear to be working so far. What you mentioned before with Israel support, providing support to Azerbaijan, mm. there's with Iran now supporting Russia, that could invite the Israelis to start providing support to, uh, support to Ukraine, uh, sorry, provide opportunity for Israel to provide support to, uh, to Ukraine. And those guys will probably be very welcoming of the support because they need all the help they can get. So it, at the moment, it doesn't appear to be uh, Iran's you know, move to help Russia doesn't appear to be very successful because aside from that aspect, the Shahed-136 drone has proven to be, well, it had some initial success in Odessa and, and elsewhere, but because of the you know, lacklustre capability, they've pretty much been done nothing more but provide Ukrainian air, anti-air with target practice. Yeah. Um, but having said that, I reckon wait till spring where we start to see those missiles uh, potentially being used. Uh, that's probably where things, uh, I, well, I dare say if those things prove successful, that's uh, you know, that's where we'll see things change there. And on the subject of these drones, actually, I guess you could say it's also raised a cause for, a cause for concern in Saudi Arabia, who have long since been the target of Iranian-made drones, mostly from the Houthi rebels in Yemen. But again, we've seen these drones in Ukraine not perhaps not being as effective as they could be. Matt, you mentioned earlier that these drones that they've sold to the Russians are actually fairly low-tech technology, and if they're used correctly, they can be very effective. But generally, they've been used as more of a strategic weapon uh, in a way that's not really intended to be used. And yes, they can be used in drone swarms, which I, I assume states such as Saudi Arabia, who have always been trying to deal with these drone attacks, will be very concerned about. Generally speaking, the drones have got quite a poor press coverage. They seem to be uh, seen as quite low-tech weapons. So perhaps this hasn't had this the impact on Saudi Arabia and other regional opponents to Iran that they may have wanted. Uh, elsewhere, uh, moving away from Ukraine as well, they've developed these alliances or these relationships with groups such as uh, the PMF in Iraq, the Houthis in Yemen. Uh, I would say these relationships, have, they've had significant success here. The, the level of Iranian influence in Iraq is, is huge. And yes, it's waning. So you were saying that 10 years ago, perhaps it was much higher than what it is now. But it still shouldn't be, it, we still can't sit here and say that there's, you know, there's not much of it. The influence is massive. I'd say, yeah, they, they're still probably the single power with the most influence in Iraq. Yeah. But also now, I'd say they're competing with more. Mm. Um, Turkish investment is way up. I spoke before about uh, Iran's plans for a railway 
to the Mediterranean, but Turkey's also planning one all the way down to Basra as well. Um, Turkish investment, like I say, is quite high. They're actually the, I think, the largest, largest trade power now. You mentioned before Saudi Arabia, obviously Iran's great rival in the region. They've invested a lot uh, into Iraq, same with the UAE. Iraq's now part of the Gulf Cooperation Council and has joined their electricity grid. So, yeah, Iran definitely is a major, major player in Iraq. But where, whereas before they were the player, now they've got uh, a fair amount of competing competing rivals mm. in, in Iraq. So I think it's fair to say that their relationship building overseas, whether that be with groups or independent states, has been has mixed success in certain areas. Perhaps it's been more successful than others. And as Matt was saying, in Ukraine, they, there might be some uh, blowback in that. It might invite Israeli in, uh, in, increase in Israeli involvement in the Ukraine conflict in the form of weapons being supplied to Ukraine. You never know. Obviously, there's, there's a lot to that question, but uh, in the interest of time, we won't go into it too much. So, yeah, mixed success. They've had it. They've had influence. They've perhaps have lost some in certain areas, but it's still substantial. So, the power projection was our second part, and it's very heavily linked with the relationships part as well. And why this is how how well is Iran done? Are, and I've put here just as a very oversimplistic question: Are they winning? So, in Iraq, we've just mentioned a second ago, they've started to lose influence at the expense, and Turkey and Saudi Arabia starting to gain influence in the form of uh, investment. In Syria, Iranians are very reliant on Russia to help prop up the Syrian government. Iran just hasn't really got the economic background to be able to prop up the Syrian government in the way that the Russians have been. But with that said, the Iranian militias are very heavily entrenched in Syria, very much so in uh, places like Deir ez-Zor. There is some competition between Iran and Russia here, but generally the cooperation overrides the, uh, the competition. Elsewhere, in places such as uh, Yemen, I would say they've been very successful in power projection in that the Houthi rebels are very dug in in Yemen. The war's been going on for a long time, and uh, the Houthi rebels have a significant amount of leverage over, uh, over the Yemeni, gov- Yemeni government right now after a series of military battlefield successes. So power projection alliances, moderately successful. Again, I think it depends on where you're looking. So our third one was, uh, have they done, has their foreign policy succeeded in securing Iran's borders? Personally, I would say no here. I think they haven't had a long-term strategy in Afghanistan. They didn't really account for what would happen when the West pulled out of Afghanistan, and now they have an unpredictable border with Afghanistan. In Iraq, yes, they've always had influence here, but again, we're seeing an increase in anti-Iranian sentiment to the north with Azerbaijan, we're seeing a strong Israeli influence in the Azerbaijani arms industry and, it, and the relationship between Azerbaijan and Iran has gone down sharply this year alone. So again, another unpredictable border. So I would say Iran's borders right now are quite, uh wouldn't say unstable, but I would say unpredictable. And lastly, has their foreign policy successfully supported domestic stability? I think this is a strong no, for my opinion. Others might say that by backing themselves with uh, other conservative governments, other hardline authoritarian governments, they've essentially entrenched themselves further in power and they've also secured themselves allies that would help them stay in power, even if that's in the form of uh, hard support to put down protests. However, the ongoing mass protests that we're seeing there, ethnic tensions which we talked about, as well as uh, internal divisions within the Iranian government itself, make me think that the foreign policy has had little positive impact on their domestic stability would you guys agree with that is there anything you think anywhere i've gone and you guys are sat there thinking nah he's an idiot what's he talking about <laughs> i i think well i i think in that in that regard is the i mean i i 
it keep I keep it keeps that's sort of what you mentioned there. Keep I, I keep pointing back to the you know taking custom Soleimani off the board there. I think that's having long term like a, a, like it's the the effects are starting. Like you could call it sort of the the dominoes are starting to fall. Like since that particular that particular incident with him and a, a, a his two, uh, and a, a few of his uh, a few of his second in commands, uh, a few of his you know uh, junior commanders gone. I think what we're sort of seeing now with like the sort of lackluster perform, uh, performance is possibly spillover effects of that particular incident because that guy, from what I understand, uh, Custom Soleimani uh, was you know head you know running the IRGC and pretty much the you know r- running you know, Iranian Iranian foreign policy as that was that would often be project uh, built upon being able to project terrorism uh, you know throughout uh, throughout the Middle East. So I think I think it's a case of with Qasem Soleimani out of the picture, uh, I think what we're what we're starting to see is effects of that. Mm. Yeah, I think uh, this Iranian decline in influence perhaps could be put down to a lack of uh, strong leadership, or it could be uh, long more longer term factors as well. But it all could be a mixture of both, most more likely. But yeah, I agree with that. It's an interesting point. So with all that in mind, and to conclude what we were just saying, I think it's from what we've uh, come to here. I think Iranian foreign policy has had. A lot of success in the past. Iranian influence in places such as Iraq and Yemen is very substantial. However, we have seen a, I would say, a reduction in uh, Iran's foreign policy success in recent years, and we're actually starting to see more resistance towards Iran in certain areas, with very little uh, uh, influence from the West in many of these cases. So, Again, it's not necessarily a hard conclusion as to it has been a successful or it has not, but I think in a lot of issues in international politics, it's always somewhere in the middle. Thanks for listening to this episode. If you enjoyed it and you want to hear more content from the Intelligence Fusion team, please head over to our website and onto our social media channels where you can find other more content about themes such as crime in Sweden, the, Wagner, the Russian Wagner Group, as well as work from Matt here about uh, the ongoing conflict in Ukraine. If you found yourself listening to this episode and you think you have something to say, you can always join our Discord server where where we welcome all sorts of discussion. You can join our Discord channel using the link in the description of this episode.